Chapter thirty eight of the Mayor of Casterbridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. Chapter thirty eight. The proceedings had been brief, too brief, to Lucetta, whom an intoxicating welt lust had fairly mastered, but they had brought her a great triumph, nevertheless. The shake of the royal hand still lingered in her fingers, and the chit-chat she had overheard that her husband might possibly receive the honour of knighthood, though idle to a degree, seemed not the wildest vision. Stranger things had occurred to men so good and captivating as her Scotchman was. After the collision with the mayor, Henchard had withdrawn behind the lady's stand, and there he stood, regarding with a stare of abstraction the spot on the lapel of his coat where Farfrae's hand had seized it. He put his own hand there, as if he could hardly realize such an outrage from one whom it had once been his wont to treat with ardent generosity. While pausing in this half-stupefied state, the conversation of Lucetta with the other ladies reached his ears, and he distinctly heard her deny him—deny that he had assisted Donald, that he was anything more than a common journeyman. He moved on homeward, and met Jopp in the archway to the bull-stake. "'So you've had a snub,' said Jopp. "'What if I have?' answered Henchard sternly. "'Why, I've had one, too, so we are both under the same cold shade.' He briefly related his attempt to win Lucetta's intercession. Henchard merely heard his story without taking it deeply in. His own relation to Farfrae and Lucetta overshadowed all kindred ones. He went on, saying brokenly to himself, "'She has supplicated to me in her time, and now her tongue won't own me nor her eyes see me.' And he! How angry he looked! He drove me back as if I were a bull-breaking fence. I took it like a lamb, for I saw it could not be settled there. He can rub brine on a green wound, but he shall pay for it, and she shall be sorry. It must come to a tussle, face to face, and then we'll see how a coxcomb can front a man. Without further reflection, the fallen merchant, bent on some wild purpose, ate a hasty dinner and went forth to find Farfrae. After being injured by him as a rival, and snubbed by him as a journeyman, the crowning degradation had been reserved for this day, that he should be shaken at the collar by him as a vagabond in the face of the whole town. The crowds had dispersed, but for the green arches which still stood as they were erected, Casterbridge life had resumed its ordinary shape. Henchard went down Corn Street till he came to Farfrae's house, where he knocked, and left a message that he would be glad to see his employer at the granaries as soon as he conveniently could come there. Having done this, he proceeded round to the back and entered the yard. Nobody was present, for, as he had been aware, the labourers and carters were enjoying a half-holiday on account of the events of the morning, though the carters would have to return for a short time later on to feed and litter down the horses. He had reached the granary steps and was about to ascend, when he said to himself aloud, "'I'm stronger than he.' Henchard returned to his shed, where he selected a short piece of rope from several pieces that were lying about. Hitching one end of this to a nail, he took the other in his right hand and turned himself bodily round, while keeping his arm against his side. By this contrivance he pinioned the arm effectively. He now went up the ladders to the top floor of the corn-stores. It was empty except of a few sacks, 
and at the further end was the door often mentioned, opening under the cat head and chain that hoisted the sacks. He fixed the door open and looked over the sill. There was a depth of thirty or forty feet to the ground. Here was the spot on which he had been standing with Farfrae when Elizabeth Jane had seen him lift his arm with many misgivings as to what the movement portended. He retired a few steps into the loft and waited. From this elevated perch his eyes could sweep the roofs round about, the upper parts of the luxurious chestnut trees, now delicate in leaves of a week's age, and the drooping boughs of the lines, Farfrae's garden and the green door leading therefrom. In course of time, he could not say how long, that green door opened and Farfrae came through. He was dressed as if for a journey. The low light of the nearing evening caught his head and face when he emerged from the shadow of the wall, warming them to a complexion of flame color. Henchard watched him with his mouth firmly set, the squareness of his jaw and the verticality of his profile being unduly marked. Farfrae came on with one hand in his pocket, and humming a tune in a way which told that the words were most in his mind. They were those of the song he had sung when he arrived years before at the Three Mariners, a poor young man, adventuring for life and fortune, and scarcely knowing whitherward. "'And here's a hand, my trusty fear, and gis a hand o' thine.' Nothing moved Henchard like an old melody. He sank back. "'No, I can't do it,' he gasped. "'Why does the infernal fool begin that now?' At length Farfrae was silent, and Henchard looked out of the loft door. "'Will ye come up here?' he said. "'Eh, hey, man,' said Farfrae, "'I couldn't see ye. What's wrong?' A minute later Henchard heard his feet on the lowest ladder. He heard him land on the first floor, ascend and land on the second, begin the ascent to the third, and then his head rose through the trap behind. "'What are you doing up here at this time?' he asked, coming forward. "'Why didn't ye take your holiday like the rest of the men?' He spoke in a tone which had just severity enough in it to show that he remembered the untoward event of the forenoon and his conviction that Henchard had been drinking. Henchard said nothing, but going back he closed the stair hatchway and stamped upon it, so that it went tight into its frame. He next turned to the wondering young man, who by this time observed that one of Henchard's arms was bound to his side. "'Now,' said Henchard quietly, "'we stand face to face, man and man. Your money and your fine wife no longer lift ye above me as they did but now, and my poverty does not press me down.' "'What does it all mean?' asked Farfrae simply. "'Wait a bit, my lad.' You should have thought twice before you affronted to extremes a man who had nothing to lose. I've stood your rivalry, which ruined me, and your snubbing, which humbled me. But your hustling that disgraced me I won't stand. Farfrae warmed a little at this. "'Ye'd no business there,' he said. "'As much as any one among ye. What, you forward stripling, tell a man of my age he'd no business there?' The anger vein swelled in his forehead as he spoke. "'You insulted royalty, Henchard, and twas my duty as the chief magistrate to stop you.' "'Royalty be damned,' said Henchard. "'I am as loyal as you come to that.' "'I am not here to argue. Wait till you cool down. Wait till you cool, and you will see things the same way as I do.' "'You may be the one to cool first, said Henchard grimly. "'Now this is the case. Here be we in this four-square loft to finish out that little wrestle you began this morning.' There's the door, forty foot above ground. 
one of us two puts the other out by that door. The master stays inside. If he likes, he may go down afterwards and give the alarm that the other has fallen out by accident, or he may tell the truth. That's his business. As the strongest man, I've tied one arm to take no advantage of he. Do ye understand? Then here's Addie. There was no time for Farfrae to do aught but one thing, to close with Henchard, for the latter had come on at once. It was a wrestling match, the object of each being to give his antagonist a backfall, and on Henchard's part unquestionably that it should be through the door. At the outset Henchard's hold by his only free hand, the right, was on the left side of Farfrae's collar, which he firmly grappled, the latter holding Henchard by his collar with the contrary hand. With his right he endeavoured to get hold of his antagonist's left arm, which, however, he could not do, so adroitly did Henchard keep it in the rear as he gazed upon the lowered eyes of his fair and slim antagonist. Henchard planted the first toe forward, Farfrae crossing him with his, and thus far the struggle had very much the appearance of the ordinary wrestling of those parts. Several minutes were passed by them in this attitude, the pair rocking and writhing like trees in a gale, both preserving an absolute silence. By this time their breathing could be heard. Then Farfrae tried to get hold of the other side of Henchard's collar, which was resisted by the larger man exerting all his force in a wrenching movement, and this part of the struggle ended by his forcing Farfrae down on his knees by sheer pressure of one of his muscular arms. Hampered as he was, however, he could not keep him there, and Farfrae, finding his feet again, the struggle proceeded as before. By a whirl Henchard brought Donald dangerously near the precipice. Seeing his position, the Scotchman, for the first time, locked himself to his adversary, and all the efforts of that infuriated Prince of Darkness, as he might have been called from his appearance just now, were inadequate to lift or loosen Farfrae for a time. By an extraordinary effort he succeeded at last, though not until they had got far back again from the fatal door. In doing so, Henchard contrived to turn Farfrae a complete somersault. Had Henchard's other arm been free, it would have been all over with Farfrae then. But again he regained his feet, wrenching Henchard's arm considerably, and causing him sharp pain, as could be seen from the twitching of his face. He instantly delivered the younger man an annihilating turn by the left forehip, as it used to be expressed, and following up his advantage, thrust him towards the door never loosening his hold till Farfrae's fair head was hanging over the window-sill and his arm dangling down outside the wall. "'Now,' said Henchard, between his gasps, "'this is the end of what you began this morning. Your life is in my hands.' "'Then take it, take it,' said Farfrae. "'You've wished too long enough.' Henchard looked down upon him in silence, and their eyes met. "'Oh, Farfrae, that's not true,' he said bitterly. God is my witness, that no man ever loved another as I did thee at one time. And now, though I came here to kill thee, I cannot hurt thee. Go, and give me in charge. Do what you will. I care nothing for what comes of me. He withdrew to the back part of the loft, loosened his arm, and flung himself in a corner upon some sacks, in the abandonment of remorse. Farfrae regarded him in silence, then went to the hatch and descended through it. Henchard would fain have recalled him, but his tongue failed in its task, and the young man's steps died on his ear. Henchard took his full measure of shame and self-reproach. The scenes of his first acquaintance with Farfrae rushed back upon him, that time when the curious mixture of romance and thrift in the young man's composition 
so commanded his heart that Farfrae could play upon him as on an instrument. So thoroughly subdued was he that he remained on the sacks in a crouching attitude, unusual for a man, and for such a man. Its womanliness sat tragically on the figure of so stern a piece of virility. He heard a conversation below, the opening of the coach-house door, and the putting in of a horse, but took no notice. Here he stayed till the thin shades thickened to opaque obscurity, and the loft-door became an oblong of grey light, the only visible shape around. At length he arose, shook the dust from his clothes wearily, felt his way to the hatch, and gropingly descended the steps till he stood in the yard. "'He thought highly of me once,' he murmured. "'Now he'll hate me and despise me for ever.' He became possessed by an overpowering wish to see Farfrae again that night, and by some desperate pleading to attempt the well-nigh impossible task of winning pardon for his late mad attack. But as he walked towards Farfrae's door, he recalled the unheeded doings in the yard while he had lain above in a sort of stupor. Farfrae, he remembered, had gone to the stable and put the horse into the gig. While doing so, Whittle had brought him a letter. Farfrae had then said that he would not go towards Budmouth, as he had intended, that he was unexpectedly summoned to Weatherbury, and meant to call at Melstock on his way thither, that place lying but one or two miles out of his course. He must have come prepared for a journey when he first arrived in the yard, unsuspecting enmity, and he must have driven off, though in a changed direction, without saying a word to any one on what had occurred between themselves. It would therefore be useless to call at Farfrae's house till very late. There was no help for it but to wait till his return, though waiting was almost torture to his restless and self-accusing soul. He walked about the streets and outskirts of the town, lingering here and there till he reached the stone bridge of which mention has been made, an accustomed halting-place with him now. Here he spent a long time, the pearl of waters through the weirs meeting his ear, and the Casterbridge lights glimmering at no great distance off. While leaning thus upon the parapet, his listless attention was awakened by sounds of an unaccustomed kind from the town quarter. They were a confusion of rhythmical noises, to which the streets added yet more confusion by encumbering them with echoes. His first incurious thought that the clangor arose from the town band, engaged in an attempt to round off a memorable day in a burst of evening harmony, was contradicted by certain peculiarities of reverberation. But inexplicability did not rouse him to more than a cursory heed. His sense of degradation was too strong for the admission of foreign ideas, and he leant against the parapet as before. End of chapter 38